We'll be in Romans 7. Six verses. <laughs> and you're like, what? 4,000 words? Why is it 4,000 words? Six verses, 18 through 23. <clears throat> it says, verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For the wishing is present in my flesh. Wait. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. And Paul says a lot in that. Um, just to back up a little bit, you know, Romans 7, we're still in that parenthesis of Paul's answering the question of the law. Like, why, why the law, Paul? If, if you said the law entered, that sin may increase, and you said, you know, we're not under the law anymore. What's the point of the law? And Paul was, Paul's doing here in Romans chapter 7 is showing us that not only are you not justified by the law, as he showed us in chapter 1 through 3, but you're not sanctified by the law either in Romans chapter 7. And he teaches us that also in Galatians too. You can see what we went to, I think, last week where he says, oh, foolish Galatians, have now you, you, you began in the Spirit, now you think you're perfected by the flesh? So that's what Paul is teaching us here. And then in our text right here, Verses 18 through 21 are pretty much parallel to verses 15 through 17. That's why I could do six verses because three of the verses, are, four of the verses are pretty much a parallel to the last three verses that we just dealt with last week. But I'm going to bring something else out of those verses that we didn't really deal with last week. So with that said, I'm going to go ahead and get into the text. I have three points. The first is what dwells beneath. The second is the hypocrisy of law keepers. I got that in quote, law keepers. And the third is a different law. So the first point is what dwells beneath. Notice in our text in verse 18, he says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. He says for, which means because. Because what well, yeah, I just said, because I know, for I know, because I know. So Paul here connects this statement to the previous one that he just made about wanting to do good, but not doing it, and doing the very thing he hated. He just says that in those previous verses, 15 through 17. I want to do good, but I don't do it. I'm doing the things that I hate to do, and the things that I want to do, I'm not doing. And then he says, for, or because I know that in me dwells no good thing. And remember, this is still an answering the question of the law, if you remember our context. So what about the law, Paul? If we're not under the law, and when the law entered, sin did increase, why the law? Well, it leads us to verse 24, which we will be dealing with later. But then says, but then you say, against Paul, the law must be sin. Remember that question got raised up too. But here's the answer to that question. Remember, he dealt with the law is holy, good, and righteous. It's not sin, 
And we prove that it is holy, good, and righteous because when we sin and don't want to, we agree that the law is good, right? When I sin and I don't want to sin, I'm agreeing that the law is good because I want to do it. That's the answer. You don't keep the law, not because the law is sin, but because nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. That's why we don't keep the law. So why the law? Well, it, it points out our failures. And it takes us to verse 24. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, the Lord Jesus Christ. The law remains holy even though we're not holy. Even though you're unholy, the law remains holy. The law does not change. And as I mentioned the uh, a few weeks ago, God doesn't lower His standard of the law because we're fallen in Adam. The law remains just and holy. The law is it, that God gave us, He doesn't give us the law, we fail the law, then He lowers the standard for us. The law remains just and holy, even though you're not. I actually believe this is, a little, this is fundamental to Christianity. This isn't, this isn't some peripheral doctrine here. It's fundamental to Christianity. So let's dig into this a little bit. What does Paul mean by this statement? And why would he say it about himself? What does he mean when he says, I know nothing good dwells in me? Why would Paul say that? Well, it started in the Garden of Eden, right? With Adam as our representative. Adam was our head. He was our representative. When God made Adam, he represented all men and women at that time. For, for anybody that came from Adam was going to be represented by him. He was our head. And Adam was good. After God created Adam, he said, God saw all that he made, and behold, it was very good. That included Adam and Eve. They were good. When Adam chose to eat of that fruit, sin entered into the world and entered into humans. So he wasn't good anymore. He was good when God created him. God said, don't eat of the tree. He eats of the tree. And sin entered in. Not only into the world, but into him. He wasn't good anymore. And as we've dealt with in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, it says, therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all have sinned. All have sinned. Why? Because of Adam's sin. And because of Adam's sin, sin came into the world and we're all made in it. And we're all going to death. That includes both of us. All of us in here. We're all headed there, right? That's the ultimate reality to this life as it ends. This life ends. We can drive by many graveyards, right? We can go, if, if we have family members here, we can see the stone that's there that has our family, family member's name on it, right? Our friends. We know we're headed there. We probably all have loved ones that have died. And guess what? It came from sin. Because of that first sin. We, have all, we all will pass through that door. Because of that first sin that Adam made of that tree, we all will pass through that door of death. So let's dig a little bit deeper in this, though. We all know that Adam sinned. This is pretty fundamental. This is not elementary, I guess. This is elementary that Adam sinned, and now that we're sinners. But to say that no good dwells within me, that's kind of radical. Turn back with me to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, verse 5. 
Now, if you all are familiar with this psalm here, this is the psalm that was written, you know, after David and Bathsheba and David's in repentance. But look at verse 5. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. This is King David. He says, I was brought forth, or I like to actually the KJV, it says, I was shapen in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. The word for iniquity there can be perversity or depravity. So he says he was brought forth in depravity. He was shapen in perversity. King David. This isn't some peripheral guy in the Old Testament. This is King David, right? But you, and then you're like, well, that's David. That's not me, right? That's David. That's, that's Old Testament David. That's not me. What is, it, what is also saying in the Scriptures? All we like sheep have gone astray. All have turned aside of their own after their own way. David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, he is called a man after God's own heart, says this about himself. I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And do we think that we're better than that? Turn to Job 14. Job 14.1. says, man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Y'all feel like that? <laughs> like a flower, he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. Thou also dost open thine eyes on him and bring him into judgment with thyself. Listen here. Who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with thee, and his limits thou hast set so that he cannot pass. God has set our limits, right? And we shall not pass. He, he set it up at this certain day, at this certain time, you will all pass from here. And none of us will live any longer than that. But listen to what he says. Who can make clean out of unclean? Your ancestors were unclean. All the way back to Adam. When Adam sinned, it brought sin into the world and every single person that came from Adam has been unclean. No one is righteous. No, not one. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Turn up to Job 25. In verse 4. This sounds like a boot camp language right here. Listen to this. How then can a man be just with God? Or how can he be clean who is born of woman? If even the moon has no brightness and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man that maggot and that son of man that worm? These aren't the kindest words to say about somebody, are they? You worm? Bildad is the one that's saying this. And he's including himself in this. He wasn't just saying, Job, this is you. He was saying, this is me too. I'm a man, and this is me too. I'm, I, in, in the sight of God, I would be less than a magnet. 
Look at one more place with me. Matthew 15. Believe me, we could look at all kinds of stuff showing this. Look at Nebuchadnezzar when, when God saved Nebuchadnezzar and he said that, that men were less than grasshoppers in his sight. Matthew 15, verse 18. This is Jesus speaking. He says, let's start at 16. And he said, are you still lacking in understanding also? He talked to, the, to his disciples there. Do you not understand that everything that goes out of the mouth passes into the stomach, which is eliminated, but goes into the mouth, passes into the stomach and is eliminated. But the things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man. We saw some of this yesterday, right? For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. And it says, out of the mouth, out of the heart. It comes from within. That is what's in us. It's not something that's coming inside of us. This, this exists inside of us now. And it's coming, it's, he says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts. That's inside of us. Just as James says, when a man is tempted, he's drawn away of his own lusts. I'm not drawn away by your lust. It's not something outside of I me, mean, even though obviously a temptation can come from the outside, but it wouldn't be a temptation if there wasn't lust inside that drives it out of me. This is what's working in our members. It's, this is what Paul's talking about here. And none of us can escape this. None of us. It's passed down from one generation to the next, all the way from Adam to, to whatever baby's being born today. All have the same issue. All have that within their members. So none of us can say, no, not me. I don't deal with this. This, this isn't me. I don't have to worry about this. I'm no maggot. <laughs> I wasn't conceived in sin or shaping in iniquity. My heart is clean. I don't have these issues. None of us can say that because we all have those issues. And that's why Paul says that nothing good dwells in him. And Paul's pointing to himself here. He's not pointing to somebody else. He's not saying nothing good dwells within Peter. Nothing good dwells within James. He says nothing good dwells within me, in my flesh. And in pointing to himself, he's teaching us that we're all there. Paul calls himself the chief of sinners, right? The foremost of sinners there in 1 Timothy 1. Does that mean that Paul sinned more than anybody else that had ever lived? It does not. It does mean that he sees his sin more than he sees anybody else's. And you gotta, if, you, if you don't see it like that, you're just not being honest with yourself. If you don't see more of your sin than somebody else's, there's a problem. And we're going to get to that on our, on our next point there. But In Paul, he says, in him dwelt no good thing. The apostle to the Gentiles was the chief of sinners and had no good thing dwelling within him. This is quite the opposite of what he would have claimed as a Pharisee before, right? Philippians 3, 3 5, and 6, it says, Paul's, Paul's 
He's not boasting in the sense he's, he's taking credit. He's just pointing back to when he was a Pharisee. He says, circumcised the eighth day. What does that mean? He was, I'm, a, I'm a Jew. <laughs> of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. As a Pharisee, they had people to look to him and thought he had it. Man, I got this thing nailed down. I've kept all these things since my youth. He would have saw himself as a law keeper. But isn't it interesting, listen to this, isn't this interesting that as a Pharisee, he would have seen himself as a law keeper and he wasn't even a believer at that time. Now, and he was headed to hell as a Pharisee. As a Pharisee, he was headed to hell. He wasn't a believer, but he would have saw himself as blameless. I'm blameless. And now, as a Christian, he would see himself as though there's nothing good that dwells within me. And now he's headed to heaven. You see the contrast? The true believer doesn't take comfort in the law or keeping the law, but rather in Christ, because they know that they can't keep the law. That's Paul here. No good thing dwells in me. I want to keep the law and I don't keep the law. The thing that I hate, that's the thing that I'm doing. The thing that I want to do, the good that I want to do, I'm not doing it. He doesn't say anymore that as to the righteousness which is in the law, I'm blameless, but no good thing dwells within me and I'm the chief of sinners. What a change for Paul. So this is going to take us to our next point here. The hypocrisy of law keepers. Notice in our text here, um, verse 18 through 21. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very thing that I do not wish. But if I am doing the very thing that I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. We, like I said, we kind of dealt with this last week, so I'm bringing out another portion of this that we didn't deal with last week. Obviously, we know as Christians we struggle. That's our fight. That's our struggle. But what I didn't bring out last week is the hypocrisy of those that think they're keeping the law. Paul is looking within himself. We just saw that, right? For out of the heart of man, out of the man... Paul says, within me dwells no good thing. He says, I know that nothing good dwells in me, in my flesh. I want to do this, but I practice very evil I don't want to do. And I find that even when I want to do good, evil is present in me, is what he says. This man here is looking within. And what does he see? He sees evil. He sees sin. He sees law breaking, not law keeping. And why? Because now he knows the law. Not like he thought he knew the law when he was a Pharisee, but as he really knows the law now as a Christian. When the law, all of the law, the physical and the spiritual of the law, was revealed to him, he sees that he doesn't keep it. But that even when he wants to keep it, he doesn't. And evil is present in him. Notice what he doesn't do, what we may often do when seeing the law. When we, think of the, when we see the law, we think of all the ways that someone else has broken the law. Somebody holds up the law, oh, I, 
I wish so-and-so was here to see that. Maybe in hearing a sermon preached, we, we think that. I wish they were here to hear this message. They really needed it. We often look outside ourselves, don't we? That's part of our problem. We, we can sit here and listen to a message, and the message is for you. And it's for me. It's not for you to go, ooh, I wish so-and-so was here so they could hear this because they need it. No. Did God put you here today? Did he put them here today? No. But you're here to hear the message. Don't look outside. Look inside. We look to that law and we say, I know, I know it says this, and can you believe that person did that? Paul lived that life as a Pharisee. And today, many people from within the walls of the church still do this, do we not? They dare not say that even when I want to do good, evil is present in me. Those, those people that want to judge other people, they dare not look in the mirror and say evil is present in me. That no good dwells within me. And if they, and if they don't say it about themselves, you better not say it about them. They would never do that. They boast of all the things that they're doing for the Lord, right? I feed the poor. I help the elderly. I give to this ministry or that ministry. I'm the pastor. I'm the deacon of this church, right? Don't accuse me of any wrongdoing. I, keep, I put on this fake smile on Sundays when I'm around God's people. Right? Or how about this? You know stuff is going wrong in your life because you're sinning against God. You heard somebody say that? Well, if you guys would just obey, this stuff wouldn't be happening to you. I actually heard that say, this is not in my notes, but you need to be careful here, but looking for a house, and every house we've looked at, you know, it got sold out from underneath it, but that's because y'all ain't obeying God. I just don't find that in His Word. But when the stuff goes wrong in that person's life, guess what it is? Oh, it's because I'm obeying. Satan's tempting. Satan's doing this and Satan's doing that. But when you're doing it, it's because you're not obeying. You heard that before? I have. That's the height of hypocrisy. Isn't that what Job's friends said? It must be sin, Job. God wouldn't allow this to happen to a righteous man. How does God... How does the book of Job start? Listen to this. God says this about Job. Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Praise God. Don't you want God to say that about you? Job was actually going through the trials of life because he was righteous. Not the opposite. But what would a hypocrite say to Job? In Job 8, 6, he says, If you are pure and unright, upright, Surely now he would rouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. If you are pure and upright, Job. God just said he was pure and upright. And then your friend comes along and says, Well, Job, if you were just pure and upright, you wouldn't be going through this. In other words, Job, I haven't sinned like you have. God's not doing this to me. Because you sinned in a way I didn't sin. If you would have just obeyed God like me, you wouldn't be going through this. But Job was a righteous man, and God allowed that to happen to him. Maybe you're going through trials because of sin, right? That does happen, right? Sometimes we do go through trials because of sin. But maybe you're going through it because of righteousness. 
Who are you to tell me why this trial is happening in my life? I think God's wise enough to show me that, right? Or maybe you're just going through trials because we live in a fallen world. And we all go through them. We all, we all face death. We all face, face our stuff breaking and all this chaos because we live in a fallen world. Whether you're righteous or whether you're a sinner, it doesn't matter. You're going to face trials. I say this to say, be careful of what you think or say about someone going through a hard time. You don't know why. Don't be a hypocrite and act like you don't have hard times as well. Don't act like you keep the law when you don't. If the Apostle Paul struggled here, do you think you're better than him? That was the Apostle's struggle. That's what we're dealing with right now. If you think you're better than the Apostle Paul, I'll believe it when you sell everything and move to a country that doesn't have the gospel and go out there and preach the gospel and start churches and get murdered for the gospel's sake. Paul did that. Beheaded by Nero. Even in all this, Paul said evil is present in me. As he was out there, the mission, gave up his life for the gospel. Evil was present in me. Not outside of me. Is evil present outside of us? Yes, it is. You know why? Because it's present in other people too. However, this is actually something I think Christians should readily recognize within ourselves. It's part of believing the gospel. The gospel isn't this, but it's that this that makes us want to draw nearer to Christ, right? It's, the gospel isn't that I, I have evil dwelling within me, the, but the evil that's dwelling within me makes me want to reach out to Christ and say, Oh, wretched man that I am, who can save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, the Lord Jesus Christ. When we recognize that in me dwells no good thing, and even when I'm wanting to do good, evil is present with, with me, if we keep this in mind, it'd be hard to be a hypocrite. But that pride in us that thinks we're better than someone else, we're not like them. I'm not like them. It makes us think and say things like the Pharisee did against the tax collector, right? Remember that? They're both at the temple and God said, or the Pharisee said, God, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. I'm not like the others. I pay tithe, I do this, I do that. And what did the, what did the tax collector do? It said he smote his chest. I don't know what it says in anything but the KJV, sorry. It said he smote his chest and he wouldn't even look up to heaven. But said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He didn't say, God, that Pharisee over there, you know better. You know he's a hypocrite, God. He did. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Why? Because he knew that in him dwelt no good thing. And what did Jesus say about those guys? He said, which one of these two went home justified? And it wasn't the Pharisee. It was the tax collector. So are you the proud? I'm glad I'm not like others. Or are you the humble? Be merciful to me, the sinner. He says, the sinner. Are you the one to come to Romans 7 and think, that can't be a Christian. Or are you the one to come to Romans 7 and say, Amen, Brother Paul. How does he know how I feel? Let's move on. Our third point here. 
a different law. Verses 23 or 22 and 23. You got ESV, Jason? They say delight. Will you read that? For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. You notice verse 22 is almost a direct quote from Psalm 1. That's why I had him read the delight, because I don't know why. They, it says joyfully concur. This is modern day English, supposedly. KJV said delight. Modern day English says I joyfully concur. I just, I don't know why they changed that. But anyways, so it's, it's almost a direct quote from Psalm 1. Y'all know Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of ungodly, nor standeth away in the sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. That's what Paul's pointing to. Psalm 1. Blessed, the blessed man of Psalm 1. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And Paul's repeating that here. He says that in my inward man, I delight in the law of the Lord. In other words, it's a delight to obey God. But what else does it say? But I see a different law in my members. So I delight in the law of God, but there's still a law in my members, a different law. Not a law of obedience to God, but a law that says that every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust. A law that says, even when I want to do good, evil is present in me. And the good I want to do, I'm not doing, but the evil that I hate, that I'm doing. That's the law. And that's the law that came from the fall. The law, that law is the reason why all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. As it says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. It's a law that mankind cannot break free from. If we could break free from that law, we should be be able to at least find one sinless person in the world right now, right? But I can guarantee you this, no matter where you fly your plane to, to any country in the world, you will find sinful people everywhere. Everybody you talk to. And the person you shave in the mirror. Or if you don't shave like me, then you don't have to look in the mirror. There aren't any righteous ones. There aren't any people in the world that have not sinned. There aren't any people in the world that don't have this law within them because this law came from Adam. And we're all sons and daughters of Adam. We all have broken and will continue to break God's law. Why? Because we have a law in our bodies. And as Christians, we, have, we still have this law in our bodies that wages war against the law in our minds. That's what Paul's dealing with right here. Or to pick up our context in Romans chapter 5 through 7, we have the old man, right? The old nature that is still there waging war against the new man, the new nature. Brethren, you have that going on right now. If you don't know this battle, it's because you don't know Christ. Because if you know Christ, you say, I, have, I want to obey. But this law in my members has me disobeying. Even when I want to obey, evil is present with me. That old man. And as Paul will show us in Romans chapter 8, 
that as an unregenerate, as one that doesn't know Christ, you cannot obey. And that desire of Psalm 1 isn't in you. That delight that we see in, in Psalm 1 where he says, I, de for I delight in the law of the Lord, that's not in you as a, if you don't know Christ, if you're not in Christ. Why not? Because you're not that blessed man. When it speaks about the blessed man, it's the blessed man to whom the Lord will not impute iniquity. That's what the blessed man is. It's not just, just, oh, I'm blessed. No, you're blessed because the Lord has not imputed iniquity to you. We already saw that in Romans chapter 4. And what Romans chapter 4 was, was pointing back to the psalm there that says, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute iniquity. That's the blessed man. And when the Lord doesn't impute iniquity, that's, or when the Lord does, doesn't impute iniquity, that same blessed man wants to obey. When God takes my iniquity away, I want to obey Him. And I fail. <laughs> but I want to. The desire is there. Even when the desire is there, evil is still present in me. However, there is one whom didn't have this indwelling sin. That's where Paul's taking us in Romans 7. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, Christian, you have this struggle. We have this struggle. Yes, there is a war, waging of war inside of you. Sometimes where you don't even know if you're a believer anymore, right? Even, even as Calvinists, I, I, sometimes you... And we believe in security. We believe in eternal security. My sin deceives me into thinking that I was never saved. Maybe I wasn't saved. Maybe I didn't believe the gospel. That indwelling sin. However, the one who was born of a virgin, he didn't have that indwelling sin. Because it was passed through the man. It came from Adam and it was passed through the seed of the man. Seed of man. All the way up. All still today. Jesus, born of a virgin, didn't have that sinful nature passed to him. And him being God, he could never have a sinful nature. Why not? Oh. Jesus had two natures. A human nature and a divine nature. However, he did not have a sinful nature like you and I do. He kept the law. The law, remember when we dealt with that the law inflames sin in us? Sin might lie dormant, but when the law comes, it inflames the sin in us. It, it increases sin that grace did much more abound. That doesn't happen to Christ. He did not have that indwelling sin. He kept the law. The, the law didn't inflame sin in Him. He kept it perfectly, and He actually always delighted in the law of God then died as though he had never kept the law of God. Do we think about that enough? He died as though he never kept the law of God. Yet, he always kept the law of God. Jesus didn't die a martyr's death. He didn't just die as a substitute. He did die as a substitute. He didn't just die as a substitute. He died as though he was the worst sinner to ever walk this earth. He took the wrath of God for all the elect. Every single one of our sins. Not just my sins, but your sins too. If you die outside of Christ, 
Guess whose sins you'll pay for? Your own. That's it. You'll pay for your own sins, which is enough to be punished forever in hell. However, Jesus didn't pay for just one person's sin, but all the sins of all the ones that the Father chose to give to His Son. And He paid that infinite debt that we owe in a matter of a few hours. The full wrath of God was spent on Him. That cup was filled to the brim with wrath. The cup of God's wrath. It was filled to the brim. And Jesus came and drank every last drop of that cup for His elect. Every single one of them. It was completely dry when He finished. And we actually see a picture of that when we take in communion. When we take our cups and drink them. It's pointing to our great Savior who drank the cup of the winepress of the fierce wrath of Almighty God for us. He drank it for every one of His people. Then He died. And was buried. But was he really dead? And that one, some try to argue, but he wasn't really dead. The swoon theory, y'all heard of that? First, the people that killed Jesus were professional executioners. This wasn't just a side job for them. This is what they did. They killed people. The Romans, they, they killed people. They, the, the crucifix was, was the, like the greatest torture thing that they that's ever existed. They knew death. They know a dead person when they see them. Why? Because they saw thousands of them. You can read the history of some of this stuff. Walking into the road to Jerusalem was lined with crucifixes and people on them all the time. All the time. You know you heard Jesus talk about Gehenna? That, that Gehenna, the valley of Hinnom right there, was a place where they take those dead bodies and throw them onto the fire. And they had burned forever. That fire never went out because they were always throwing new dead bodies on it. They knew death. They knew if he was dead. He ain't faking on the crucifix. Oh, he's faking dead. No, you don't fake when you're hanging there on a cross. Second, not only were they professional executioners, but when they stabbed his side and blood and water came out. We know that, right? That was scientific evidence that he was actually dead. See, there's typically one of two ways one would die upon a Roman cross. Either by suffocation. This worked probably even harder. Hypovolemic shock is the other way. Suffocation or hypovolemic shock. Both would lead to fluids surrounding the heart. But listen to this about this shock. First, the heart would raise to pump blood that was not there. Why would blood not be there when Jesus was hanging upon that cross? Because they just beat him and ripped his flesh off with the cat of nine tails. He, had, he was bleeding out profusely. Had to have somebody else come up and carry the cross for him because he didn't have the power to do it. And he's hanging on the cross now, bloody with, with nails in his hands and his feet, a crown of thorns on, bleeding from everywhere. The heart would raise to pump blood that was not there. There wasn't enough blood there. The victim would collapse or faint due to low blood pressure. The kidneys would shut down to preserve body fluids. The person would experience extreme thirst as the body desired to replenish lost fluid. Does that sound familiar? Jesus actually died on that cross. Now I'd argue... 
that it wasn't just because of loss of blood, it wasn't just because of shock, or it wasn't because of asphyxiation, but it was from the wrath of God that he died. The crushing of the Father, as spoken about in Isaiah 53, when it says, and it pleased the Lord to crush him. The Father poured out his wrath on his Son, and then his Son, in KJV, gave up the ghost. He died. He died, and the executioners knew it. Not only that, but listen to this from one of them that was standing right there in Matthew 27, 54. Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. The ones that killed him. Truly, this was the Son of God. He almost was right. He is the Son of God. Not was. It wasn't truly He was the Son of God because He was still the Son of God. And He proved it three days later when He rose into the grave. We saw that in Romans chapter 1, right? And once again, eyewitness attests to it. Over 500. And most of them went to what? To die of old age? believe in a fairy tale? No. Most of them were killed, were martyred because they believed what they saw actually happened. And it wasn't that they just believed it was somewhere out there. It says Jesus was displayed openly, publicly before all. You guys all saw it. You saw Him dead. You saw Him raised. You touched His hands. You touched His side. And then the Romans say, if you don't stop preaching now, I'm going to kill you. You might as well kill me then. Because I ain't going to stop preaching what I saw. He, he was witnessed by over 500. And they went to the death because they believed it. And after his resurrection, but before his ascension, what did Jesus say to his disciples? All authority has been given to me. Go you therefore into all the world and preach the gospel. He sent His disciples on a mission and then He ascends to His Father's right hand where He intercedes for us. And I can only say with, with the Apostle Paul here, thanks be to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. He does save us from this body of death. Yes, Christian, you will fight and struggle in this life. Yes, Christian, you will fail sometimes and hurt people sometimes. Yes, Christian, other Christians will hurt you too. However, there is a coming a day that this will all be reconciled. Where all his enemies will be a footstool. That day is a coming and he's accomplishing it right now. And he's using his church to do it. His broken church. Not his perfect church. His broken church. He's using people that fail and fall to take his kingdom to the ends of the earth. You and I. Will you be one of them that goes out and proclaims. Who shall save us from this body of death? Thanks be to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And get to our application here. Our call to faith and repentance. Is there anybody in here that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ? I've already spoken about dying in your sin. The gospel was already preached. Now is the time as an ambassador of Christ to put it at your doorstep. God doesn't have us here by accident. I've already mentioned that. There's no accidents by God. God put 
each and every one of us here, to hear the message. And you've sinned against an almighty God. And if you die outside of Christ, you'll be punished forever. And none of us here want anybody in here to, for that. And this isn't some fairy tale. This is more real than what we're experiencing right now. And it's forever. However, there's no need for you to go there. Since the gospel has been preached. Jesus has died for sin. Jesus has risen from the grave. And He is seated at the, Father, the right hand of the Father right now. And through me, He's calling you to repent and believe the gospel. Believe upon Him. Don't leave here today without knowing Him. That's all that matters. That's all we're here for. Any of us. Right? It's Him and His glory. If anybody have any questions on that, you can ask anybody in here. And if they can't answer it, they'll hopefully point you to somebody that can. And if they can't, then they'll probably hopefully point you to somebody else that can. But the call is today. Today is the day of salvation. God doesn't grant us it tomorrow. Now to the believer here. That law that still fights inside of us, that wins the battle sometimes, Y'all been in those battles and you lost? The old man beat me today. That old man, if you will, he hasn't left us. He's still there fighting the new man. When he wins those battles, don't sulk in it, but repent and believe the gospel. It's the same call. When I fall, when I fail, my answer to that is to repent and look back to Christ. Get back up and repeat after Isaiah does. In chapter 6 where he says, Here I am, Lord, send me. After repentance. Here I am, Lord, send me. You've confessed and repented, now it's time to go. It's not time to sit and whine about your sin. To complain that you'll never beat it. Ah, oh, this sin, it, it beats me every time. It might. Get up. Repent. Confess. Move on in faith. There's certain, I think... We'll be taking sins this whole life all the way up to glory. I'll be fighting the same sins. You will be too. You're going to fight them your whole life. You think, well, I, I crushed this, this sin. Well, that sin shows up in another way. Well, you know, maybe I was addicted to this. Well, I got rid of that addiction. Guess what? That addiction showed up in another way. You got to fight those th things, though. They don't go away this side of glory. And I don't believe, I believe we could say so because we don't believe in what's called entire sanctification. That's heresy. That you'll be perfect on this side of glory. That's the only way the sin wouldn't show up, right? Is if you were perfect. And none of us will be. You'll have sins. It says, if, if you have sins, confess your sins. If any man sin, we have an advocate with our Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Confess your sins. Go before Him. John's writing that to Christians. That old man doesn't die easy. But remember, previously in Romans, that he, that old man is crucified with Christ. He's crucified with Christ. He's hanging there dying. Don't give Him breath. 
He says, I thirst. Don't give him drink. Feed the new man with whatsoever things are pure and true. That's our calling. So let's go to our next point, our, our call to war. When coming across passages like this and messages like this, you may feel like, why? I mean, if it's going to be a battle my whole life and I'm going to lose some and I'm going to win some, but it's going to be a battle, why, why even bother? When I was an unbeliever, it was easy, right? I didn't have those battles. I just went and sinned as much as I wanted. There's no hope, right? I don't want to fight this fight anymore. Sometimes I've been there. So was Paul. When he says to live is Christ, but to die is gain. He was ready to go. Listen to this. Philippians 1, 23. But I am hard pressed from both directions having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. He's suffering for their sake. I'm ready to go. To die, to, to live as Christ, and to die is gain. It's far better for me to leave. For me. But for you guys, I'm suffering. I'm fighting this fight. And remember, Philippians, where was Paul writing that from? Was it the comfort of his lazy boy sitting in front of his television? Paul wrote Philippians from prison. Could you imagine being in prison? Of, of course Paul is far better to be with Christ than to be in prison. But he says, I'd, I'd rather stay. You know what he was in prison for? Preaching the gospel. What did he do the rest of his life? All the way up until they took his head. Preached the gospel. But he recognized that even though there's a battle here, the war had been won already. The war is over. The war has been won. We have battles here, and we may lose a battle here and lose a battle there. We may win a battle here and win a battle here. But even when we win those battles, don't get too prideful thinking, I'm fine now, I got this. Because it comes quick when you think like that. That's that hypocrisy coming up, that pride coming up. And it's pride cometh before what? The fall, right? Jesus Christ won the war for us. As Christians, Jesus Christ has already won that war. He rose from the grave and beat death. We fight from that standpoint that the war is already won. Listen to this, 1 John 5, 4 and 5. For whatever is born of God, that's talking about being born again, being a Christian, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You hear that? It said you're an overcomer. We don't lose here. We don't lose here. We overcome the world. We do not lose here. You may have heard this before, but the word for overcome there is, is the Greek word nikeo, from whence we get the word Nike. It means to conquer. 
You are a conqueror. And actually, what does it say in, in Romans 8? It says, nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. You're not a loser. You, you have, the, the battle has already been won. You are more than a conqueror. Jesus took the life, the loss for you and has made you a conqueror. That's you, Christian. Sin will not prevail. The old man is crucified. And you, are, and you being made new are more than conquerors. Let me take this a little step further too. As a kingdom and priest, Christ also said this about us. In Revelation 2, 26-27. He who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him will I give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessel of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. That Psalm 2, that's what he's quoting there. Psalm 2 was speaking about Jesus. Jesus says, you know, after his death, burial, resurrection, he says, all authority was given to me. What's he pointing to? Psalm 2. And now what's he saying in Revelation? That I am giving you that authority. To you that overcome. To you, the conqueror. This is by the authority of Christ that was spoken about in Matthew 28. And he extends that authority over the nations to us as Christians. You're not just a conqueror of sin. It's not just that battle's already been won for sin. That battle's already been won for the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We're to go forth and conquer the nations for Christ in his name. This is the mission that he sent us out on. When it says, I say, call to war, that's what I'm talking about. Is Christ has made you a conqueror. He has sent you forth. He's given you a mission. And that mission is to go forth and preach His gospel to every single person that you come across. All, through all the ends of the earth. And He's going to use us to do it. He's going, God is going to do that no matter what. The question is, are you going to reap those rewards? This is bigger than you and I. It's not that we just come to church on Sunday and we got that box checked. I was listening to this thing last night. I don't get too far into it, but it said, the lady said something like, uh, you know, Sunday's the day, the one day we set aside to, to practice our faith. And I said, well, and I, was, I didn't say it. I was thinking like, if Sunday is the only day that you come along to practice your faith, you're probably not a believer. Because we need to practice our faith from Monday to Saturday as well. Not just Sunday. Not Sunday we check this box. How are you going to be a more, more than conquerors and go forth and conquer the nations in one hour on Sunday? We're not going to. But God is going to. So let's take that gospel message to the ends of the earth. Let's, as Paul said, follow me as, even as I follow Christ. Let's follow Paul as he followed Christ in laying down his life for the church and the advancement of his kingdom. Can anybody argue that Paul did not do that? I don't think so. Paul laid down his life for the, for, for the church and the advancement of God's kingdom. He laid it down so much that, like I said a couple times already, he lost his head. He was taken before a king, a Caesar, that could take his head off. And you know what he, he would do? 
preach Christ. You want to take my head off? Take it off. But I'm still preaching Christ. And if you do, oh well. Far better to be with Christ. If only we would take that mindset come tomorrow. When we wake up tomorrow morning, remember that. You're more than a conqueror in Christ. So fight your sin with that eye, that in mind and go forth with the gospel message with that in mind. Amen.